Good morning. My name is Tim Watkins. I'm one of the elders here at Real Life Church, and I have the privilege of bringing the message this morning. And I want to start off by getting a, a little survey here. How many chess players do we have this morning? Raise your hand. You like to play chess? Oh, a few of you. Yeah, not too many, but a few of you. That's good. You know, I used to love to play chess. I haven't played in a long time. In fact, it's been years, and I probably forgot how to do it. But I can remember as a teenager and in my early teens, there was a group of us that would get together, and we could play chess for hours. I mean, just, just, just sit down, and it was great because you didn't have to rely on the luck of the draw of the cards or rolling dice. It was just pure strategy. You went after a king to capture him, and you got to kill a lot of the enemy on the way. It was fun. The only problem is when you play with the same people all the time, you get to know each other's strategy, and it just turns into a big bloodbath with a stalemate. Nobody wins, but, uh, but we had a lot of fun with it. You know, there are some people, they see life like a chess game. They feel like they always have to be two, three, four steps ahead of everyone else. Their, their life is, whole, is filled with strategy. Now, if that's you, don't raise your hand. We have counselors in the church, and they might think you're antisocial, so don't raise your hand on that. But some people, not you, but other people, they kind of see life that way. Now, some people kind of look at the world, and they have this idea that the world we live in seems like one big chess match between good and evil. And the history of the world has seemed like, with all the wars and problems we've had, as, as just one big chess match between good and evil. And it looks something like, well, take a look at this video. Kind of freaky, isn't it? Well, I don't believe that the world is one big chess match, but I do know that there is a spiritual battle that is taking place and has been taking place almost since the beginning of mankind. And it's a battle between good and evil. And so this morning, I want us to focus a little bit on engaging in the battle. Now, I don't want to encourage you to be engaged in the battle, but I want to remind you and myself that we already are. So I want to encourage us on how we can engage well and find victories in this battle. So number one in your outline is the first thing that we need to do is determine our enemy. Know who your enemy is. That's where the best battles begin. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, exactly who our enemy is and who our enemy is not. He says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So first of all, he tells us who our enemy is not. And our enemy is not flesh and blood, which means who? It means you and me and all other human beings. He says that our battle it takes place in a dark place. He calls it the heavens. And it's interesting here that Paul uses the word heaven in the plural. Does that mean that there's more than one heaven? Actually, the Bible does use uh, terminology of heaven, 
speaking of different types of heavens. Now, there's the heaven that we normally think of where God's throne is, the place that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us where we'll spend eternity after we die. That is a real heaven. But also, this physical universe that we experience with our senses, this earth that we're on and the universe that we look up and in the night sky and see all the stars and we're learning more about, that is another type of heaven that the Bible talks about. But there's another type of heaven that's a spiritual realm. There's a spiritual battle that is taking place. Yes, angels and demons are real. This is not a fairy tale. These are actually battles that are taking place. And we're part of this spiritual battle. Now, he talks about those in the dark place, the forces of evil. There are forces of evil. And, of course, we know that uh, the biggest enemy we've heard about the devil or Satan uh, is one of our enemies. And uh, this is not in your outline, but in Isaiah chapter 14, we, we come up with the name Lucifer. And it, it really means son of the dawn or son of the morning. And so there's this picture of this beautiful dawn. And so Lucifer must have been a very beautiful being. In fact, that, that chapter goes on to say that he was cast out of heaven because he tried to ascend above God, to be worshipped above God. And he was cast out of heaven. And when he was cast out of heaven, a third, a third of all the angels followed him out of heaven. That absolutely blows my mind. Created beings in heaven, worshipping God, actually followed Satan. There must have been something very attractive about him. Now, one of the false assumptions that most people have about Satan is just like the two in that chess match, they're, they're kind of even rivals. They're not. Satan is not the antithesis of God. He was created by God, and he's a single being, very powerful one. He's a spiritual being, but he's just one being. In fact, uh, we read in the scripture that he can only be at one place at a time. I don't know if you uh, read through the the Bible using the church app, but I do. and just, just went through the book of Job. And in the very first chapter, it talks about the sons of God referring to angels coming before God. And Satan is there, and he goes, where have you been? He says, roaming to and fro on the earth. So he is active on the earth, but he can only be at one place at a time. So where is he? Well, I don't really know. I've heard uh, some experts say that they think that he may have a West Coast office in Hollywood, and an East Coast office in Washington, D.C., and I think he may take vacations in Santa Fe. I'm not sure about that, but that's just kind of what they tell me. But he can only be at one place at a time. But he does have rule over this spiritual realm, and it is very powerful, and it is very active around us. Now, Satan is our enemy. Make no mistake about it. And he does have a plan for our lives. Listen. God created us in his image. Every human being is an image bearer of God. And when Jesus went to the cross, he died for everyone. And so that's how much he loves us. Therefore, the enemy hates us. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says he came to, to give us life and give it to us abundantly. But he also talks about our enemy. He refers to him as a thief, and he says he comes to kill, steal, and destroy and make no mistake about it, he wants to destroy you. Our enemy, your enemy, wants to absolutely destroy your life. And not only does he want to destroy your life, 
He wants to, when you die, drag your soul off into an eternal hell. Now, I don't know what all hell is, but Jesus described it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of great sorrow, and a place of great bitterness and anger. This is your enemy's desire for you. But there is some good news. Our enemy, our foe, has already been defeated. Ooh, silence. <laughs> wow. I think that's kind of exciting myself. But that's just me. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 tells us how, this is, how he has been defeated. It says he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed, he triumphed over them by him. So God erased the certificate of debt. Now what's he talking about here? The rules that are posed against us was the law. The law was given so that we could see that we're sinners, and we are. But when Jesus went to the cross, he took care of the debt that we owed. In fact, there's actually a nice little uh, Greek term that actually describes the erasing of that debt. Does anybody know what it is? Any Greek scholars in here? Anybody heard of it before? Can anybody see the writing on the wall? Tetelestai, right? So we heard about that on Easter. Paid in full. Our sins are paid in full. And according to Colossians, that means that Satan was defeated because he no longer has any power over us because our sins have been forgiving. We are going to spend eternity with Christ, and there's nothing he can do about that. So he's powerless over us unless we give him some power. He can't, he can't give our sin back. He can't take us away for eternity, but he can make us ineffective. But he has been defeated. Now some of y'all may remember a comedian back in the 80s named Sam Kinison. And uh, he was loud and he was vulgar, got into um, a few problems that, that were public, had a problem with drugs and alcohol. And it came out after he became a comedian and became very popular that he was a preacher, an evangelist. In fact, his father was an evangelist. And when his father died, that's when he became an evangelist. And while he was preaching, his wife left him for uh, a man who was a leader in a, in a church. And then he, he remarried and that wife left him for someone else, and he kind of became bitter and angry. And his family said, you should become a comedian because you're good at it. And he was very successful. And he got to a point where even in his stand-up comedy, he began to mock the gospel. And there was rumors going around that he had fallen into some great types of evil. And once he was interviewed on a late-night talk show by Arsenio Hall, if you remember him, who's also a preacher's son, and he approached him about it. And let's take a look at that clip. You know, yeah, of course people, people, people even say, there's a rumor out that Sam's into devil worship. Oh, Where does man. That come now, why would I worship the loser? I read the book. <laughs> <laughs> if you read the book, the guy's the loser. Yeah. Why would I worship the loser, man? Yes. Yes. No, I was raised the same way, yeah, way you were, man. You can't get away from that. Yeah. And, when, and when Corvettes go out of control, <laughs> the first thing you do is you go and go, oh, Satan, please help me. Yeah. You, oh, God, oh, Jesus, somebody, help me. You know, I mean, the first thing I do is pray, man. I talk to God all the time. Even as he got away from God, he knew who the loser was, and he knew who to go to in times of need. We have victory because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Unless 
we give him uh, power over our lives. The only way we can do that is to stop seeking God every day, to, to rely on his power, or to let Satan, Satan tell us that, well, you may be saved, but I still have power over you. He doesn't. We have, we have victory. But the reason we have victory and because we have victory, he still wants to take us out of the battle. He can have victory in that part of our lives. He can make us ineffective. Now, some of you know that uh, I'm from Alamogordo. I was born there and, and raised there off and on. And I had an uncle who absolutely hated Alamogordo. He, uh, whenever he was in Alamogordo or we'd bring up the word, that's the closest I ever saw him to getting angry. But there was a reason. He grew up uh, in Santa Rita over by uh, Silver City, and he played foot, football for Hurley High. Now, you think Hurley, I'm familiar with the um, Silver City area, and Hurley doesn't have a high school. Well, that's how long ago it was. In fact, it was so long ago that he was a fullback. And not only was he a fullback, but this was back in the day where high schools didn't have divisions, and they didn't have these nasty rules like, you know, unnecessary roughness. And even though Hurley is much smaller than Almogordo, when they would play, the Almogordo Tigers knew that they were about to get defeated unless they could take out one or two guys. One was named Tact, and the other was my uncle named Shorty Edwards. And they went to Almogordo to play him, and the first thing that they did in the game is they went after my uncle Shorty. And they took him out. They not only took him out of the game, they put him in the hospital, and that's the last time he played football. So he was not very, very happy about Almogordo. But, you know, if we're on fire for Jesus and we're serving him where we're supposed to be, guess what? You have a target on your back. The enemy wants to take you out. Because he has power over you? No. Because he knows he's powerless against you unless he can take you out of the game. So if our enemy is defeated, why do we need to be concerned about the battle? Why? Because there's still victories to be won. If you read the end of the book, let me go ahead and give you a spoiler. We win. Satan loses. He is the loser. But we still have some victories to win. So number two is determine your victory. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. And give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So Paul here writing to a young pastor says pray for all people but more specifically those in authority. Now today who are those in authority because he's talking about a political sense here. Yeah, I want to be silent, too, because, yes, it's true. It's our politicians. And he, he says to pray for how many of them? All of them. All? All of them? Are you serious? I can complain about all of them, and I do all the time. I find it very difficult to pray for any of them. But what's the result? Peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. United States, 2019. Would you describe our country today as a country that's peaceful and godly? You think God could just give us a little hint of what we could do about that? Something we could do to engage in the war to become a, a nation that's, that's peaceful and godly? He has. It's not easy, but it is simple. And then what's the result that we're looking for? For people to be saved and to understand the truth. See, here's the thing about 
our warfare. Our job is not to go out and kill the enemy. Our job is actually to go out and rescue the enemy so that our enemies become our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, would you call that a victory? Silence. Think about it. Pray about it. See what you come up with. This is what uh, we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So he's talking about people seeing the hope that we have. Has anyone ever approached you and said, I can tell you have hope, I can tell that you have peace, and I want what you have? But let me ask you a question. If someone came up and said, I know that because of your faith you have peace and you have a life that I'm envious of, would you tell me how I can have what you have? What would you tell them? Would you be ready to give them an answer? Or more importantly, what about people that challenge the Christian faith, that challenge Christians in general? How do we respond to that? You know, I uh, did some searching uh, for questions for Christians, not from other Christians, but people who want to challenge the Christian faith. In fact, I uh, found some information from a guy named Larry Rhodes who grew up in a Christian home, but now he's an atheist. And he's not just an atheist who disbelieves in God. He's an atheist that preaches atheism. And he's even written a book. And I've, I've gathered uh, just a few of the questions that he's posed to Christians. And uh, I have to admit, some of these questions are pretty challenging. I'm, I hope I never meet him and he asked me to try to, to answer these. Some of them are really kind of stupid, and some of them would be good spiritual talking points. But you might wonder, why in the world would I even look for questions uh, from an atheist? Well, because this is the enemy that we're trying to win. Now, as Christians, we can get together and ask each other questions and, and have answers and get excited about the faith that we have and the gospel that we have, and we should do that. We absolutely should, should question one another, grow together, get excited about it, have a pep rally, come to church and say amen. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, that's what I'm talking about. Well, you're getting closer. We can get excited, and that's great. We should do that. But if we get excited here and then we, we leave the church and don't do anything with it, it's kind of like having a pep rally. And then when the team goes out on the field or is supposed to go out on the field, the team says, nah, we're good. We like the pep rally. We feel good about it. And there's a chance we could lose, so we don't want to spoil the, the, the good feelings that we have now. So we do have a war to do. So let me just, just read a, a couple of these questions. One is, what exactly is your basis for believing that the Bible is true? Not necessarily the word of God, but true. In the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, if the fruit of the tree of knowledge contains the knowledge of good and evil, and right and wrong, then how could Adam and Eve have known what is wrong to disobey God and eat the fruit before they did? How could a loving God send anyone to hell? If God is all loving, how could he allow children to get cancer? Why did God, why did an all-loving God create evil? And, and he references Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I, will, I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
if I only have to have faith to believe, how do I know what to believe? And, and he goes on with several questions. So are we ready to answer some of those questions? Do we even, do we even have those questions? Or are they, they ever posed to us? You know, in, in the psalm, Psalm 23, probably the most popular psalm, the, the shepherd psalm, David says something very interesting in Psalm 23, 5. He says, you prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, David was a warrior. He knew what the heat of battle and the sting of battle was really like. And yet God says, I want, to, I want you to prepare a table before your enemies. Okay, we're in the heat of battle. Let me set up a table, break out my nice tablecloth and some nice napkins, some of my best china, and let's sit down and have a meal. But you know, in the spiritual battle today, it could look pretty similar to that. Actually sitting down and listening to people, find out where they're from, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, begin to share the gospel for them. Do you ever have those opportunities? I see them all the time. Every morning when I open up my, my laptop and I look at Facebook, there are people that are attacking Christianity. And I have to admit, the first thing I want to do is really go after them, and I mean give it all I got. But then I have to stop and think, is this an opportunity to reach people for Christ, or is it just time to get into another argument? Proverbs 18.21 says this, Life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Do you ever stop and think about how powerful words are? Only through words can you say, I love you. Only through words are wars started. And the most powerful words of all are speaking the truth and love under the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Telling people that they can have hope in their life. Lives are changed for eternity. But words can also be used to repel people. I know not long after Debbie and I got married, we had a, a neighbor who was uh, a member of a church which actually taught a gospel that led people away from Christ instead of bringing them to him. And he decided to have a conversation with me one day because he knew I was a Christian. I think my wife had something to do with that. And we got into to quite a discussion. He was well indoctrinated. He was well trained. And I have to admit, he kind of stumped me in a few places. I got aggravated as we were talking, and I said, I want you to get out of my house and stop telling these, these lies. You're being indoctrinated by a cult. And do you know how many conversations we had after that? Zero. Zero. I shut him down from talking to me. And after that, I prayed that I didn't shut him down from the gospel forever, but it, it could have happened. I, I had the truth, sort of. It was just a gentleness and respect that I still have to work on. Last of all, to win in this, this war, to engage in this war, we need to unite and conquer. Now, you're familiar with the term divide and conquer because it's the oldest and most effective military strategy there is. Because if you can divide your enemy, if you can get your, your, your enemy to fight amongst themselves, you can pretty well defeat them. Can you not? And so divide and conquer is the oldest military strategy. But if you have an army that's united, that's together, that, that, that's well organized and structured, it's very difficult to penetrate that army. In fact, it's very difficult to defeat them. Now, let's take a look at some 
chess pieces up here. These are called chessmen. Now, the irony of this is the most powerful chessmen is actually the queen. <laughs> but these are, these are di different chess pieces. In the front, you have the pawns, of course, and then the, the different pieces in the back that all have special functions. They all have moves that they can take, but they're also limited in their moves. And so the great strategy about playing chess is knowing the power of the chessmen and knowing how to organize them and use them in such a way that they work together to defeat the enemy. You know, the church kind of works that way as well. Now, this isn't in your outline, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you might go read it today. Uh, it, it talks about the church as being a body, and it talks about the different parts of the body and the and spiritual gifts that God has given us all and the callings that he's given us. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, it says, God has placed each one of the parts, referring to us, in one body, referring to the church, just as he wanted. So God is strategically putting people in the church where it pleases him. There's a good reason why we're here. It's by divine appointment. God has brought us together because of our spiritual gifts and our callings and the work that he wants us to do and the part that he wants us to play in the battles that, that we still have ahead of us. Now, obviously, I don't have time to, to preach a whole sermon on spiritual gifts and where you uh, are part of the body, but many of you, maybe all of you, have just gone through Connect Four. If you haven't, the fourth Sunday of every month, it's focused on spiritual gifts and finding your place in the body. And it's just, it's just as important as the chess pieces in victory. They all have their place and they all have their purpose and they're all put together to, to work together. And so we're in here to win and we all have our place. Now the greatest military speech ever given in American history was given by that great general, George C. Scott. It, well, actually he was portraying another general named George Patton. But at the beginning of the movie, if you've seen it, he gives a, the, this great motivating challenge to a great army that was going to go out and fight the great World War II. And the last thing he says in that speech is he says, 30 years from now, when your grandchild is sitting on your knee, and he says, Grandpa, what did you do in the Great War? You won't have to say, well, I shoveled manure in Louisiana. Now, when I get to heaven, I don't know what all God is going to ask me, but I sometimes shudder to think, what if he asked me, what did you do in the greatest battle of all time? Where were you in the war? How effective were you in, in the war? You see, Christ, when he died on the cross, he, he died for our sins and those that we're trying to reach. But not only that, he died to give us peace. And certainly that, that involves a, a psychological tranquility that people who don't know Christ can't even imagine. It's a peace that's beyond all understanding. But he also died to bring peace between us and God and also peace between one another. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul addresses uh, people who could understand this a lot better than we can because of the generation they were in. But Paul says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God, 
and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have brought near, been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separates us. So there was a great division between the Jews and the Gentiles. But through the blood of Christ, they were brought together as one family, as Christians. Now, I want you to look at this model of Solomon's temple. And look at the way it's designed. We see people in these different courtyards. And these courtyards are all separated by walls. There was the court of the Gentiles. And then for the Jews, there was a separate court for the men and the women and also for the priests. So the temple was really kind of a series of walls to separate people. But when Jesus died, in fact, there was a curtain that went to the, the Holy of Holies where the high priest could only go in once a year to make a sacrifice. That was actually split in two at the death of Jesus Christ. And that is because Jesus was breaking down walls between his people and through his death were brought together. Now, the most famous Jewish historian of the first century, Josephus, he wrote that there was actually a balustrade that had an inscription from the Jews to the Gentiles on the wall. And in 1871, archaeologists actually found it and were found out that this was true. And this is what it said. It said, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. In other words, if you get past this wall, you're dead. That's how serious they were about their separation. But the cross, through the cross, Christ brought us together as a church, regardless of where we came from. And aren't you glad that it all ended there? No more separation, no more walls, no more divisions. Actually, Paul ran into a little bit of this, and he, he addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. He said, some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I'm a follower of Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Now, is Paul saying you should pick one or the other? No, he says you shouldn't follow me. You shouldn't follow Apollos, Jesus, or Peter. What he's saying is, is that there, there was divisions in the church. Now, this is one church, and yet they were so caught up in following one over the other three that there were divisions. Can you imagine one local church with four denominations? That's basically what he's saying. And aren't you glad we don't have that problem today anymore? Now I'm going to throw out some labels and titles, and you may not understand them all, and if you don't, just praise the Lord. You're probably better off. I'm sure you are. But if you identify with them, I don't want you to raise your hand. This, these are just rhetorical questions. Please don't raise your hand. Or if you know other people that you know identify with them. I'll just throw them out there. Are you a Calvinist? How about an Arminius? Are you a cessationist, a continuist, or maybe a modifierist? Are you a dispensationalist? Would that be a premillennial dispensationalist, a hyper-dispensationalist, a hypo-dispensationalist, or a progressive dispensationalist? Are you premillennialist, all-millennialist, post-millennialist? Are you a Pentecostalist, a Methodist, a Congregationalist, a Eucharist, a Seventh-day Adventist, a Baptist? Would that be regular Baptist, particular Baptist, general Baptist, progressive Baptist, independent Baptist, landmark Baptist, Fundamental Baptist, Fun Baptist, a Mental Baptist, 
Hey, I asked you not to raise your hand. And the list goes on and on. The list of this, I could go on for days. Now, some of these terms do have their value. It helps us understand some theological traditions and, and maybe some of the theological understandings that, that we need to work out. And certainly, God has worked through denominations. But the problem is, is when we begin to wear these as tags and we begin to place labels on others, what happens? What happens is we have dichotomies. Now, a dichotomy says you're either this or you're that, and they don't go together. Now, here's the real problem. When we start having dichotomies with labels that we wear, what it becomes is us and them. Now, let me throw one more title out there, and I do want you to raise your hand on this. How many Christians do we have here today? All right, let's give it up for all these Christians. All right. You see, there is no us and them. There's only us. And we need to work at promoting the, the, the unity. And listen, if there was ever a time in history that the United States needed the church to be one church united, it's today. We have a whole generation to reach before it's all over. So, does that mean we should never recognize theological differences? No, we should. Some theological differences are more important than others. There are some essential and some not so essential. But you know what? Even with the essential ones, unless it's blatant heresy against the, the gospel, we can still be united and work through it. There are some things that we can do to work together. This is a list that I put together for myself, okay, because the last part of this sermon I'm preaching to myself. I hope you'll stick around and, and hang out. Maybe you'll get something out of it. But I have to admit, I like to argue. I really do. And my two favorite subjects is politics and theology. It's true. So I have to keep myself on toes. So I'm going to preach to myself, and y'all are welcome to stay if you want. So it's ABC. Letter A, become a hyper non-dichotomist. A hyper non-dichotomist. How many of you have ever heard that label before? Nobody? Good. Oh, you, you cheated. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so other than Pastor Dennis, this is a new term. And I hope I'm the first one that came up with it because, you know, it's nice to come up with a, a new term. Uh, but what it means is you focus on not having dichotomies among one another. And maybe it'll catch on. Maybe it'll become part of the Urban Christian Dictionary if they ever have one. Maybe it'll become a movement. Who knows? Maybe it'll be a new denomination. We'll call it the anti-denomination. And I'd like to say that I'm the first hyper-non-dichotomist, uh, but actually the Apostle Paul takes that place. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. How many divisions in the church? Zero. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Remember, it was Jesus who came up with the phrase, a house divided against itself cannot stand. B, listen with empathy. Empathy doesn't mean sympathy. It doesn't mean you have to agree. But it does mean you have to listen. You have to try and find out why people believe what they believe and find out what their story is. Find out where they're coming from. James 1.19 says, My dear, excuse me, my dearly loved brothers, understand this. 
Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And so before deciding what someone believes or how they live, ask. Find out where they're from. Proverbs 18.13 says, Listen before you speak, for to speak before you've heard the facts will bring humiliation. I get humiliated almost on a daily basis just because I'm not hearing the whole story. Proverbs 18.19 says, An offended brother is harder to reach than a fortified city and quarrels like the bars of a fortress. And so new denominations begin. And then letter C, most importantly of all, let Jesus have the last word. Spend time in God's word, but don't spend time in God's word just trying to reinforce what you already know. Ask God to show you what his word says. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you when you read it. Read it as objectively as possible and just let God show you something new. You know, in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, we read about Jesus feeding thousands of people miraculously. And they were so excited, they were going to actually force Jesus to become king. He already was a king, but not the type of king they wanted. And so a whole multitude of people began to follow Jesus, and then he started preaching, and they couldn't handle his preaching, most of them, and they left. And by the time the crowd left, the only ones that were still there were the twelve. And in John 6, 67 through 69, this is what it says. It says, therefore, Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The, pow- the, the words of Christ are powerful. The Bible tells us that this world was spoken into existence by Christ himself. The Bible tells us that this world is held together by the power of his word. The Bible tells us that the last final battle that's going to give the greatest victory of all time will come from the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and and hearing the word of Christ. Let Jesus have the last word. Always return to his word and allow him to guide you. Now I'm going to close with a, a video. And this is a music video, but on the video, it's just lyrics. And so I want you to just read the lyrics of this video and uh, feel free to sing along if you choose. 